I want to welcome my friend Dick Brogdon and Jen. Dick and Jen have become great friends. We work together um, on uh, the eldership for Live Dead, which has been a global movement that Dick has started. Dick and Jen have pioneered reaching uh, the unreached parts of our world, some of the hardest places in our world, uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ through church planting in teams. And just a few months ago, I was actually in their home. They live in a restricted uh, Arab country in the Middle East and met some of the, uh, the Arab church leaders that actually meet in their house church right there. And uh, it's amazing. They're hands-on, and they are leading a movement. Once in a while, I'll say to you that right now, God is calling some of the best and brightest to go to the hardest places in the world to take the message of Jesus. And there's few people who've had a stronger voice to that generation than Dick Brogdon. So we've heard from some evangelists the end of May, people like Christopher Allam and Nikki Cruz. Last week, we celebrated Pentecost. And today, I'm I'm so honored to welcome to this pulpit Dick Brogdon, our friend, and God bless you. Let's welcome him. I love to tell the story of unseen things above. Of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It satisfies my longing. Like nothing else can do I love to tell the story Twill be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and his love. 30 years ago this month, I was allowed by one of my heroes who's sitting right there, Don Corvin, to go to the country of Mauritania on my first missionary assignment. We lived amongst the urban poor. I could not speak the language. I served as a gopher, an errand boy for the development agency that I was a part of but really wasn't that much help with no language or culture at the beginning. There was not much that I could do, and so I spent a lot of time with Jesus, praying and reading my Bible. Jesus, in those months, became very real to me, and it was the hardest and the sweetest time of my life. I had nothing, wasn't really able to do anything, and yet, I had all things, I had everything, because I discovered Jesus was all that I needed and all that I wanted. Early in the morning and as the sun went down, I would walk in the garbage fields outside of the city, the only place where I could be alone. There would be putrid and stinking rubbish and 
walking amongst the carcasses of these decaying donkeys, and there in that place I would revel in Jesus as my Savior, and I would sing songs like these. Join me if you know them. He's the Savior of my soul, my Jesus, my Jesus. He's the Savior of my soul. He's the Savior of my soul. Jesus, 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 Jesus. He's the Savior of my soul, he's the Savior of my soul. And I would marvel that Jesus was my healer, my brokenness, my shame, my weakness covered by him, and sing songs like these. Shackled by a heavy burden Neath a load of guilt and shame Till the hand of Jesus touched me And now I am no longer the same He touched me Oh, he touched me, and oh, the floods my Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me. And I would cry and wonder and ask Jesus to fill me again with the Holy Spirit. I would ask him to cleanse me and to possess me and to use me. I would thank him that he was my baptizer and he was my sanctifier. And I would sing through thankful tears. Let it breathe on me. Let it breathe on me. Let the breath of God now breathe on me. Let it breathe on me. Let it breathe on me. Let the breath of God now breathe on me. And in that sweet presence of Jesus, I would look at the filth all around me. I would mourn the poverty. I would grieve the deception. I would resent the corruption. I would weep o'er the erring ones. 
and I would remember that I wasn't home yet, and my little heart would long for my soon and coming king, and I would sing, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Jesus is our treasure. Sweet wonder that he can be carried and housed in these broken jars of clay. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our healer. Jesus is our baptizer. Jesus is our soon coming King. Jesus is all that we need and we should not and we cannot look to the world before we have lost ourselves looking to Jesus. For Jesus is the priceless treasure, and eternal life is the price. But we cannot long look at Jesus before we see him staring at the world. And it's looking towards what Jesus sees from whence we get our vision. Revelation 7, 9 to 10. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. A great multitude, which no one could number. In 1982, there were 2.5 billion people in the world that were lost outside of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forty years later, in 2022, there are now over 6 billion that are damned. In 1982, just 40 years ago, 1.5 billion of the lost were what we call unreached. Not only were they lost, they had no access to the gospel. Less than 1% or so of their constituents were born-again Christians. They had no scripture in their language. They'd never met a Christian. They were centralized in these great resistant blocks of false religion, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, animism, secularism, without God, without gospel, without hope in the world. Forty years later, in 2022, there are now over 3.15 billion that are categorized as unreached. They're now gathered in 7,000 unreached people groups. They constitute 42% of the world. They perish approximately at the rate of one per second. They are not more loved or less lost than your neighbor or your unsafe family. They just don't have access to you or anyone of and from Jesus, like your neighbor or your colleague or your relative has, which means that today, 
86,400 precious men and women made in the image of the eternal God from around the world will die and perish and suffer in eternal hell. Friends, we're not even staying up with birth rates. And while it's true that more Muslims and Buddhists, Hindus, animists, and secularists are coming to Jesus in numbers like we've never seen before, it is also true, to paraphrase Dr. Alan Johnson, that we need a little more weeping and a little less triumphalism. We need to weep again over lostness. It will make our leaping over them one glorious day all the more sincere. Faith doesn't deny facts. The fact is we still face the giant of unbelief and hideous monstrosity of lostness. We still have the Goliath of the unreached marking, mocking the armies of the living God. So the text, Revelation 7, 9, it gives us the vision of what Jesus sees from eternity and what one day we will see while praising him around the throne, a multitude from all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. And the times give us the reality that 7,000 of those peoples, 3.15 billion as the world sees it, 42% of humanity are as of now absent from the heavenly vision. Goliath still defies the armies of the living God. And it strikes me that the primary lesson of David and Goliath is so frequently misunderstood. The central point of the story is not that the underdog occasionally wins a nationalist victory against all the odds. The central point of the story is that the human underdog always loses. And the divine majesty always wins global glory for himself. A man-centered perspective sees David as small and Goliath as huge. A God-centered perspective sees Goliath as small and Jehovah as massive. That's why David asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares to defy the armies of the living God? And this is why fearless David charges the little giant with all the confidence of the great God of glory, declaring that all the world might know there is a God in Israel. God reveled in David's fearless heart, his zeal for glory amongst all the nations. For David felt and saw by faith what Revelation broadcasts. God is the giant in the room. God is the giant in the world. God is the giant amongst the nations. God is the giant in the cosmos. God is the giant across time and space. The God of glory always wins. The Lord of glory never loses. The King of glory ever triumphs. Who has the final say? Jehovah has the final say. When God is involved. There are no comparable giants. There are no rivals. There are no fair fights. The underdogs always lose. There is no nation. There is no tribe. There is no culture. There is no people that will defeat the Lord God Almighty. The lion shall win. The king shall reign. And glory shall be given to the Lamb. Do we see the world is broken? We do. Do we see the nations raging? We do. Do we see the 3.15 billion unreached peoples without truth? We do. 
Do we know the king who changes this? Yes, we do. We do. Do we see our nation crumbling? We do. Do we see the darkness gaining? We do. Do we see the 7,000 unreached peoples daily dying? Yes, we do. Do we also see them round the throne all praising? We do. From every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the Son. He is worthy. He is worthy of all blessing and glory and honor. He is worthy of this. He is the worthy giant on the throne. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. So we lift our voices and praise with our mouths the King who is worthy that reigns over all. And we see with our hearts that the God of Israel is the God of all peoples and he shall redeem to himself a multitude from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. We will not forever wallow on the shores of one or two. God is more worthy than token representation from every people. There will be millions of former Muslims. There will be armies of former Hindus. There will be legions of former Buddhists. There will be tribes of animists. There will be whole movements of secularists crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our Lord and to to the lamb that sits on the throne. Jesus is the treasure and he gives us the vision. A multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation standing saying salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb. Jesus has our treasure and a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation as our vision, Jesus then clarifies our mission. Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Dr. Doug Lohenberg exegetes the Greek in this passage by saying that the central command is to make disciples of all the nations and that the participles clarify how we do that by going, baptizing, and teaching. Accepting his premise, let's work through the text. Make disciples. We are not committed to make friends. We are commissioned to make disciples. We're not commissioned to change policy. We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to drill wells. We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to teach English. We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to run businesses. We are commissioned to make disciples. We're not commissioned to coach fitness. We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to feed the hungry. We are commissioned to make disciples. We have no objection to any of those above activities. They are worthy means to God's glorious end, but we are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to live safely. We're commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to live richly. 
We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to be popular. We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to be respected. We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to be loved. We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to live long. We are commissioned to make disciples. We are not commissioned to be celebrated. We are commissioned to make disciples. We have no objection to any of the above. God grant them if he wills. But they are not our commission nor our promise. We are commissioned to make disciples. For in fact, Jesus has called us to danger and poverty and rejection and being hated in the pursuit of making disciples. And disciples are not made in isolation. They're not made in a microwave. They're not made hastily. Disciples are not made individually. The Greek commands, as you know in this text, are plural. All of you all make disciples of all the nations. We're commissioned to do it together. That's why in the last verses of Acts 14, Luke toggles back and forth in his verbiage between church and disciples because in their view, it was the same. We make disciples together. It's the defining activity of the church and disciples gather together in prayer, fellowship, teaching, and the breaking of bread is the simplest definition thereof. We together are commissioned to make disciples. It is the very reason of being for the church. It is our co-mission, our together mission. We make disciples of all the nations until Jesus comes. And why does the text give the specificity of the ethne? Nations is where we get our word ethnic. There's an undeniable focus and repetition in the Bible on peoples, tribes, tongues, cultures, ethnic groups in Old and New Testaments. When the Bible talks about nations, it's reaching beyond the geopolitical understanding to ethno-linguistic focus, to peoples with a distinct culture, language, and religion. This was true when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, promising that every family on earth would be blessed through his seed. Galatians clarifies that that means the nations. This was true when God spoke in Psalms chapter 2 through David. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. This was true in Isaiah 56, the words that Jesus will quote when he cleanses the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This was true in Matthew 24 when we're giving the only chronological indicator of the return of our Lord. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to every nation, and then the end will come. This is why Cretans and Persians and Arabs were present at Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2. This is why Paul three times in the book of Romans talks about the obedience to the faith from all the nations. This is why our text, Revelation 7-9, promises the multitude of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. God made the individual cultures and ethnicities, the people groups, and he will be worshipped by a multitude of disciples from them all. Which is why any biblical mission, agency, church, body, or person has an undeniable requirement to prioritize the ethnic, the nations, the peoples of the earth. We make disciples of all the nations together by going. I mentioned earlier 
that the key imperative in the Greek is making disciples. This has been misused by some to say that going doesn't matter anymore, that there's no urgency. I find this as misguided as saying there's no urgency to focus on the other participles of the text, baptizing and teaching. They all matter. Going still matters. It's an uncomfortable truth that though we are together commissioned to all the nations, we continue to neglect the most dangerous and difficult places and peoples of the earth. And I just say this on the mathematics of our global dollars. 42% of the world unreached, 7,000 unreached people groups, 3.15 billion, and yet still today, approximately only 3% of our collective giving and going is applied to those regions of the world that are unreached. 97% of our finances and our people are still going to about that 58% of the world that is replete with churches, Christians, and witness. Now, we are not opposed to anyone staying to reach that 58% in Springfield as long as somebody goes to Somalia. We are not opposed to anyone staying to reach the 58 in Arkansas as long as somebody goes to Afghanistan. We are not opposed to anyone staying to reach the 58% in inner city Detroit, as long as somebody goes to Dhaka, Bangladesh. We are not opposed to anyone reaching the 58 college students in Texas, as long as somebody goes to the 42 in the secularized and godless Czech Republic. Together, making disciples of all the nations still has an urgency ongoing. And how do they go unless they are sent? In the fullness of time, the Father did not cast his redeeming eye around his heavenly home looking for an expendable angel or Elijah, Moses in repose. He did not select a novice nor a fool. He sent and sacrificed his irreplaceable, magnificent, one and only Son. For when the saving of the world is at stake, God sends his best. To these very hallowed halls, God has sent lions, Wanamakers, Woods, Bradfords, and more. He deemed you worthy of his finest. Does he view the nations with a lesser lens? No. He still expects us to send our best. We still commission beloved sons and daughters at great expense to ourselves, our homes, our thanksgivings, our ministries, our departments. We still send our best. We still believe that Jesus is worthy of that. We still believe that from the womb of Mother Church, new John the Baptist will be born and raised full of the Holy Spirit from their infancy, turning the hearts of fathers to children. Disobedient nations turn to him who is just, making ready all peoples for the coming of the Lord. We still believe that in this house, God will speak to teenage girls and say, rejoice, highly favored one, beloved of the Lord, for from you, Jesus, 
Jesus will be born into this earth and he will be great and he will reign over all nations and of his kingdom there will be no end. We still believe in Antioch-like churches. They will look over those who lead, those who teach, those who have vision and they will select their Pauls and they will select their Barnabases and they will commission to their own pain their very best to the ends of the earth. We still send our best, our only ones. We still go. And so we make disciples of all the nations by going and by baptizing. Baptism was never intended to be private, secret, or comfortable. Baptism represents death. You die with Christ. You die to sin. You die to self. You die to security. You die to silence. You rise with Christ. You live for him. You open your mouth. You witness. You testify. You suffer. For those coming out of Islam and secularism and other highly rigorous and resistant ideologies, water baptism is often the point of no return. And when converts are baptized, immersed, connected to the biblical narrative and symbolism, all kinds of human and demonic wrath erupts against them. In this sense, some of our host communities understand baptism better than we do. It is radical resurrection to bold allegiance in Christ. And no resurrection is ever intended to be private or personal. Resurrections are intended to shake earth and heaven. And we are commissioned, therefore, to go into all the world and spark resurrection. And in this cancel culture age, missionary work is now thought to be colonial and bigoted and imperial and calls to Conversion are seen as mercenary. Syncretism gains ground even amongst those who bear the holy name. And we are told, do not convert, do not impose, do not endanger, do not intrude. And we are scolded and we are silenced and we are coerced to try and make us affirm that which is vile. And to that, the God of glory thunders. And we are reminded that we are to boldly stand and preach and teach without compromise. We still call from darkness unto light. We still rescue from hell and save unto heaven. We still insist that idols are burned and former religion is abandoned. We face the winds, the howling storms of political correctness, and we defy them. And even though they have the loudest voices, we have the only liberating truth. And so unflinching, we stand before them, demand their surrender. We demand their submission to the word of God. What am I saying? We still baptize. We still evangelize. We still preach repentance. We still cut down idols. We still refuse to bow. We still call men and women to die that they might be raised with Christ. We still believe in resurrection and we still believe that death is required first. Because we still disciple all the nations by baptizing. So we go and we baptize and we teach. The ideologies of this age would distort the anointed teaching of the Word of God. We see this in Africa with the rise of the prosperity gospel. We see this in Latin America 
with the popularity of the social gospel. We see this in North America, with the shallowness of the self-help performance gospel. We see this in Europe, with the deadness of the tolerance gospel. We see this in the Middle East, with the fear of the survival gospel. We see this in Asia, with the deception of the syncretistic gospel. What is popular in our postmodern age is to question the authority of any entity or any individual in all its forms. And so now missionaries are told, do not teach, but just let seekers discover. We're not against inquiring hearts. We agree that all must learn to trust the Spirit to reveal the word in context. We see Jesus using parables and Paul asking questions at times, but we also see them use most of their words to directly didactically shape the minds and hearts and hearing of their listeners. We make disciples by the contextualized, active, anointed teaching of the Word of God. We make room for discovery while we impart what has been imparted to us. We teach and we preach and we explain and we impart in the power of the Holy Spirit the Word of God. And we make no apology for doing so as we follow in line behind Jesus and the apostles. What is our mission? Because Jesus is our treasure, because Jesus has given us his vision of a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, we together make disciples of every people group by going and baptizing and teaching. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. David Livingston was giving a lecture to the students in Glasgow. He was quoting this very passage and making reference to the four alls therefore contained. Jesus has given all authority, disciples of all the nations, teach them all he's commanded us. And then finally, he is with us always. Livingston's wife had died. His left arm was useless from a lion attack. He'd had malaria by his count 27 times. And he said to the students, Shall I tell you what has kept me all the years of my exiled life in Africa? It's the promise of a gentleman, a gentleman of the most sacred honor. It is this promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When Livingston died, they found him kneeling by his cot, his Bible open to Matthew 28 and scrawled in his frail hand in the margin by verse 18, 19, and 20, the promise of a gentleman. John York, who was a lion amongst us, simply said, there is no go without low. There is no go into all the world without low. I am with you always even to the end of the age. And so, beloved, we land where we took off from. Jesus is the beginning and the end and the center of missions. If we have Jesus, we have all. If we get Jesus right, we get everything right. Jesus is our treasure. 
And he gives us our vision, a multitude of all the ethne around the throne. And he describes the mission. Together, make disciples of all the peoples of earth by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. And lo, he is with us even to the end of the age. I love to tell the story for those who know it best. Seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song. Twill be the old, old story that I have loved. I love to tell the story. Twill be our theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We love to tell the story. Twill be our theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love.